Happy Father's Day. And I repeat again, Happy Father's Day. We start with a quiz. How, what is the average amount spent on fathers today, according to the National Retail Federation? Answer? It's a dollar amount. It's not number of ties, it's a dollar amount. $137. Have some of you been cheated? I calculate, you know, with five kids and a wife, I should be worth 800 bucks today. Question number two, what father named his son Maher Shalahashbaz? His name was Isaiah. God said to him, name him Maher Shalahashbaz. Someday you want to ask what that means. Can you imagine going through grade school with that name? We skipped to question number six. Six. What father had six sons after his wife died when he was 137? His wife died when he was 137. He got married to a young lady named Keturah and had six sons. This is Abraham. That's why we sing the song, Abraham had many sons. It wasn't just Isaac and Ishmael. It's six sons. Question number seven. Which father had three of the most beautiful daughters in the country named Jemima, Keziah, and Karen Hoppich? Job. I heard it over here. Job is the one. God gave him three of the most beautiful daughters. So I would like for all fathers to stand if you have one or more children, whatever their age be, if you have adopted them, all fathers, please stand. Give them a hand. Let's pray for them. Let's pray. Father, we ask... As these men stand here, that you would give them wisdom, equipment, and ability for the tasks that they have. Their task is difficult, challenging, and I pray that they might receive from you strength and wisdom and ability beyond their normal abilities. Would you make them successful for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. We're talking today in Matthew 21 about Jesus' second parable. Jesus was accosted by the leaders as he was in the temple. And their question was, by what authority are you doing what you're doing? He was fixing the chaos they had created, and they want to know who gave him the authority. And you remember Jesus' answer to them was, you understand the fact that you guys are unqualified for your task. Because John the Baptist came preaching righteousness, and 
prostitutes and tax collectors repented and they are entering the kingdom of God before you. And he gave the parable of two sons. The bad son and the good son. The bad son said to the father, no, I will not. The good son said to the father, yes, daddy, I love you. I will obey you hypocritically and never did. But the bad son repented at the, at the preaching of John the Baptist and entered the kingdom. The good son, represented by the scribes and the Pharisees, so far had not repented. So today we come to parable number two. And it's almost like Jesus is saying to these leaders, wait a minute, I'm not done yet. Let me explain to you the scope of what you're doing and where all this is going. So I want to take this parable and I want to look at it in light of fatherhood, since this is Father's special day. And I've entitled the message, How the Good Sons Ruin Their Privileges. I think I see in this parable three wrong steps, three wrong steps. So I've got five sections in this message. Three wrong steps, and then the result of those three wrong steps, and then Jesus' application of these three steps. So I think we start with what happened, first of all, was they did not understand what they had. These Pharisees and scribes did not understand what they had. Jesus says in verse 33, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So Jesus is talking about tenants. Tenants. You understand tenants? These Pharisees and scribes were tenants. The King James uses the word husbandmen. Nasby calls them vine growers. New English version, New International Version says he rented it to farmers. Our title, our, our normal word for these people is they were stewards, meaning they had charge of somebody else's treasure. The treasure was on loan to them to do, to make it profitable. So these Pharisees were working as stewards in God's vineyard. The beginning of the vineyard is described in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5, you have Isaiah speaking this way. He says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a wine, a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Notice the construction details of this vineyard. I'm referring to Isaiah and Matthew. The construction details. It was a very fertile hill. 
probably the south side of a hill, cleared of stones that had a fence around it, probably a stone fence, could have been a, you know, Osage orange briar fence to keep out animals as well as intruders. Number three, it had, number four, it had a tower, not only a watchtower, but a tower for shade and a tower under which they stored produce. And then it was planted with choice grapes. Choice grapes. Isaiah 5.4 says this. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Do you see that question? That question is implying that this is the best possible vineyard. This is a showcase vineyard. This vineyard is one that is going to make Napa Valley, California jealous by what it does. Then it says he leased it to tenants. He leased it to tenants and went into another country. Do you find that slightly surprising? I mean, if you have a showcase vineyard, why make it rental property? Rental property isn't usually in the category of showcase. Is this a mistake on the landowner's part? Should he have stayed there and run the day-to-day operation to make sure it worked well? No, this is normal operating procedure for the landowner. The landowner represents God, and God delegates authority. God delegates authority. This was God's plan from the beginning. Back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Do you see the word dominion? That's the word rule. That's the word authority. God's plan from the beginning was humans rule. Humans have authority. And then you notice the phrase, over all the earth. Over all the earth. How do humans rule over all the earth? Well, this passage gives us one one means. Isaiah 5, Matthew 21, describes humans ruling over God's vineyard. God plants a showcase vineyard. He places over it human beings to take care of that vineyard, to nurture that vineyard so that it becomes a blessing to the entire world. The vineyard, as you know, represents the nation of Israel. God intended that nation to bless the world. He put a lot of, if you can say it this way, he put a lot of time and energy and money into that project. 
as pictured by Choice Property, clearing the stones, the fence, the tower, the wine press, planting it with Choice Vines. Isaiah said this was a well-prepared vineyard that should have produced much wine. Isaiah 26.6 says this, In days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. That was God's plan for his vineyard, that Israel fill the whole world with fruit. God wanted the entire world to know from the nation of Israel how wonderful he was. God wanted the world to drink the wine that Israel produced and say, where did this come from? We need more of this. That was the goal. So this, these tenants had an amazing privilege. They were made a part of God's incredible project to bless the world. Problem number one. It doesn't look like they understood what they had in their hands. Rather than seeing their responsibility as cultivating and encouraging and strengthening these people in this vineyard so that this vineyard would produce fruit, they seemed to be more interested in making money and doing what they wanted to do. And God, the landowner, it says, then went into another country. Luke adds, for a long while. Do you see what that's saying? That is saying that God trusts these leaders. God has placed a lot of trust in these leaders to leave the country and go for a long time. Did they understand their responsibilities? Did they realize that their work had global implications? Well, they could have asked the landowner, you know. So how does this fit fam fathers? How does this connect with fathers? The truth is that God has other vineyards. He has created them with the same kind of care, the same kind of precision, the same kind of interest. They're called families. We fathers are tenants. We're stewards. We're caretakers of God's property with global implications. Some of you fathers may have children growing up in your family that will reach into China with the gospel message. They will reach into South America with the gospel message. Do you see that often it is easy to miss the big picture? To understand what's going on here. You know, you get bogged down in the details and you don't recognize that God is at work here. Some, some writers have suggested, suggested that the family is a bad institution because it lacks, at time, peace and harmony. Now, that may not represent your family. But to me, the family is so great and so needed because it lacks peace and harmony. You know, it's like a live board game where these little kingdoms 
are competing and running, you know, and plotting and deciding how to create creatively take out other kingdoms and so on. And in the process, your children are growing up and learning the value and the privilege of a global outreach. You remember some of the things that fathers used to say and perhaps still say that we smile at that are good. I think some of these commands are so good because they direct the attention of our children to a higher level. Commands like, quit jumping on the bed. It sounds like a herd of elephants up there. Turn down that music. Are you deaf? You're going to be. The music sounds like somebody got hurt. Put that computer down and get on with your studies. Your education is important. When I was your age, I walked to school barefoot. Through two feet of snow in zero degrees temperatures. Uphill both ways. Stop drinking out of the carton. Close the refrigerator door. Eat your green beans. Children in Africa are starving. Quit hitting your brother. Don't make me stop this car. Wipe that look off your face. You keep making that face, it'll get stuck that way. Don't roll your eyes at me. Don't walk away when I'm talking to you. You just wait till your mother gets home. Do the words military school mean anything to you? (laughs) This is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. Don't give up on those good commands, you know. Those are the kinds of things that help your children rise above the details of their own personal interest. The key is to come to understand your family from God's perspective. To see the big view. My wife and I reminded ourselves at times of Psalm 127, where it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb a reward. Like winning the lottery, like winning the lottery, and then costing you the entire lottery to... to, (laughs) to raise them. But you know, a reward. They are a heritage from the Lord. So blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. So danger number one is not understanding what you have been given. These men were working with God on his global project. They had an unbelievable privilege. Didn't understand it. Number two, they began viewing themselves as owners. Began viewing themselves as owners. Now the question is, okay, I've been given a great vineyard privilege. What do I do? How do I do it? And it looks like these guys came to the conclusion that they owned the thing and could do what they wanted. You see it in their treatment of servants. So you notice in verse 34, when the season for fruit came near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit, and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. The evidence of their attitude is their treatment of these servants. 
They didn't see themselves as tenants working for someone else. They're now the owners. They can treat God's servants any way they want to. God's picture was that there were special times of fruit bearing in this nation. He sent prophets in to collect the fruit, to bring the people to repentance, to convict them of their sin, to open their eyes to what was going on. They were coming to help these stewards, but the relationship didn't work very well because the leadership didn't appreciate the prophets. They didn't appreciate the intervention in their program. So what's happened is a change in the thinking of the tenants from being in charge of the vineyard to owning the vineyard. Do we ever do that? Do we ever act like we are an owner when we are really overseers? You know, there are other vineyards. God has given you a mind and a body and time and strength. Did you pay for it? Did you buy it? Did you pass an exam to get it? No, we woke up one day at the age of three or five or ten, some of us 25, and, and realized here I've been given this incredible thing called a body. How do you view that body? Is that a gift from God? Are you the tenant, the caretaker? Or can you just do with it whatever you want? You know, even believers in Jesus Christ, they they hear, maybe they don't hear, the word from 1 Corinthians 6. You are bought with a price. You are not your own. And they live as if they can do what they want to do. One of the problems is that we grew up under the laws of the toddler. Are you familiar with the laws of the toddler? I'm sure you are. Here are six of them. There are 99 of them. But here are six of them. Number one, if I like, if I like it, it's mine. Number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Number three, if I can take it from you, it's mine. Number four, if I had it a little while ago, it's mine. Number five, if I'm, if I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. Number six, if I think it's mine, it's mine. Anybody familiar with those? This is why you can have two toddlers out here in our nursery in a room full of toys and in precisely 47 seconds, they both want the same toy and are willing to kill to get it. (laughs) Now here's what happens. What happens is that we have a hangover of those kinds of attitudes as we grow up. And we keep thinking, if I like it, it's mine. And the only thing that changes is the price of the things I like. God said, it's not yours. I own six six acres of land in Shepherdstown. Do I own it? Or am I the caretaker? One thing I know is whoever the caretaker was before me sure didn't deal with the rocks very well. (laughs) 
I find it interesting that the nation of Israel was created in such a way that nobody in Israel owned property. Do you know that? Nobody in Israel was supposed to own property. God said, God said, in, at the 50-year mark, the year of Jubilee, all property goes back to its original owner. So you buy your property from somebody in light of year 50, when you give it back to the owner with the improvements. Here's the statement. This is Leviticus chapter 25. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. That is an amazing concept. You are strangers and sojourners with me. So the question is, can I look at my six acres as a stranger and a sojourner with God? Where I think it's my castle. You say, what difference does it make? Who cares? You know? Well, the difference it made in Matthew chapter 21 was that these these Pharisees and scribes came to the conclusion that they could treat stuff any way they wanted. They owned it. So these interruptions that came from God, they could just kill them off. When our beloved son died at the age of 22, 12 years ago now, we began by asking the normal question, why God did you take him? Why did you take him this early? And we began to realize that that is the owner question. That's the owner question that says, we own him, he belongs to us as long as we want him, and you, if you interrupt that, you're wrong. Job was the one who greatly helped me. I was greatly helped in Job chapter 1, verse 21, when I noticed that Job had the caretaker view. He said the Lord gave. This was when he lost 10 children in one day. The Lord gave, the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That verse helps us view in a completely different way, tragedy in life. The Lord gave. For 22 years, the Lord gave us an absolutely incredible son. Ask me someday some of the stories. The Lord took away. My response should be, thank you. For 22 years, blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you see the difference? There is a huge difference in living as the owner and living as the caretaker. This is God's property. God owns it. We don't have to worry about a lot of those kinds of things. Our responsibility is to follow his directions and obey him. I think the underlying motive which distorts so much of human life these days is the refusal to accept our position as stewards of somebody else's property. And we attempt to take over 
as owners, what belongs to God. We even pray that way, you know? We pray to take over and tell God what to do. So these men saw themselves as owners rather than caretakers. Number three, they attacked the owner. Got to the place where they attacked the owner because they wanted everything. The vineyard became a battlefield. This is verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Here's the result of these men refusing to accept their position. They turn against the landowner. The appearance of the son was the pinnacle of the story. The landowner had sent servant after servant after servant showing his long-suffering and gracious, merciful attitude. But here comes the son. Here comes the heir. Verse 38 is absolutely amazing, an amazing verse. You know, it gives you a completely different picture of the Pharisees. You view the Pharisees to begin with as these sweet religious guys who really want to know who Jesus is but don't have enough information and don't understand exactly who he is and they're cautious. This verse says they instantly recognized him as the heir. This verse said they quickly decided what they were going to do. We are going to eliminate him. And take over. Do you see what this verse is doing? This verse is blowing the Pharisees' cover. Fifteen minutes earlier, they had come to Jesus as people who didn't know and said, Where do you get your authority to rearrange the chaos we made in this temple? Now Jesus is saying, You know where I got my authority. You know where I'm where I'm from. You know what I'm doing here, and you now know that I know what you're going to do. How is it possible that leaders become assassins? Is it possible for a steward, a tenant, to become assassin, an assassin? I spent... <clears throat> at least half of Thursday, reading this book. This is entitled High Treason, The Assassination of John Fitzgerald Kennedy and the Case for Conspiracy. And this book is arguing that there was a conspiracy to, to kill John Kennedy. Um, don't ask me to remember what I read and don't ask me to argue the case and I don't know really what the issue is. I, you know, an ignorant taxpayer. But reading the book, reading, reading the book I found to be very interesting and very scary in certain ways. And one of the things that scared me was what it said about certain government officials. And almost in passing, this is just an example, almost in passing, one sentence said this. Chuck Colson, you know, 
was known as a master assassin. Chuck Colson was known as master assassin. I said, what? Chuck Colson? Master assassin? Where did he get that title? He didn't get that title teaching Sunday school. You know, I had a different picture on him because I got to know Chuck Colson after he got saved and after his life was transformed. But apparently there was a different side. I think that's exactly what Jesus is doing here with these Pharisees. He's pulling back the curtain on these Pharisees and everybody in public can see that they are master assassins. They know who he is. They know why he's there. And they know what they're going to do. They're going to kill him. Incredible. So don't ever think that this message wasn't clear to the leaders. They clearly understood what the picture was. So they didn't understand what they had. They saw themselves as owners and they turned against the real owner, God himself thinking they would become gods, take over the whole enterprise. So what happened? Number four, they lost everything. It's amazing how Jesus got the vineyard tenants to finish his story and spell out their own doom. Look at verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. They know that two things are going to happen. Number one, they're going to die. And number two, the vineyard is going to be given to somebody else. They know it. They said it. What does it mean that the vineyard is going to be given to others? It's an interesting question because there are all kinds of things as to what does it mean the vineyard is given to others. I think it means, A, that God still delegates authority. B, that he still has a vineyard. C, that he's still looking for fruit. D, that we need to be careful how we treat the vineyard he's given us. And then lastly, you have the application. The application is that the Pharisees have become ground zero now. They are the target for God's judgment and condemnation. Verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is a quote from Psalm 118. If you read this story in Luke chapter 20, it says, when Jesus quoted this verse, he looked them straight in the eyes. He looked directly at the Pharisees and said, have you never read this? And then he continues in verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. 
When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, still, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So here they get the truth. Here Jesus Christ exposes their inner motive. Does that change him? Does that help him in any way? No. The tragedy is these good sons ruined their privileges. They committed themselves to fight against God himself. So that leads me to ask and answer a couple of questions on Father's Day. What have you done for your father? My dad died 20 years ago. His influence is still with me. He was a tremendous influence in my life. I would encourage you to appreciate your father. Fatherhood is a big job, and most of us fathers are still learning the ropes. Honor him. This includes the way you talk to him. Say thank you. God has given him a position over you. Thank God for it. Number two, don't expect him to be perfect. There's never been a perfect father, except God. Don't think that because he is imperfect, that gives you permission to disobey. God places imperfect people in responsible positions over his creation. That's how we got in. Number three, pray for him. Ask God to open his eyes as to what God wants to show him. You ever thought that your prayers for your dad may make the difference in his success? Your prayers for your dad may make the difference in his success. Number four, encourage him. Think of what you can do to make his responsibilities easier. Let him know when he, every once in a while, does something right. Realize you're in this together. And I think that you will find that these four items are worth a whole lot more than $137. I'm sure you've heard the story of the man interviewing three stonemasons back in the 1500s. What are you doing, sir, he says to the first mason. Can't you see I'm piling one stone upon another with boring repetition until the clock strikes six and I can get out of here? He says to the second mason, what are you doing? I'm making a few shekels to buy food for my wife and family and keep the wolf from the door. He says to the third mason, what are you doing? He replies, I am helping King Charles V build the greatest cathedral the world has ever seen. May we fathers live like the third Mason. Let's pray. Father, you have given us as fathers difficult tasks. We are part of a global project. It is difficult to keep that in mind. 
It is difficult to handle the thousands of choices that are involved in that project. Would you give us wisdom from on high? Would you strengthen us? Would you make us faithful to our calling? Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.